Shall we read a poem from a light in the attic? Hello all and welcome to Shall We Read a Poem? And I'm Russ and Lauren is drinking a 15 ounce glass of rosé. And I'm ashamed. <laughs> Do not be ashamed. It is a summer afternoon and it is a rosé summer. It is a summer evening. Oh, yeah, I guess yeah. it is. Yeah, it's well into evening now. <laughs> Here we are. One day after the solstice, it is 7.35 in the p.m. right now, and the sun is in the middle of the sky. Yeah, I would have to say, if you just woke me up and were like, hey, you have no concept of time right now, look outside and tell me what time it is, I'd be like, 3 p.m.? That's right. I live above a latitude. It's a ridiculous sentence. Everyone lives above a latitude. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I encountered. A, we also, an old all, everybody lives below a latitude too. I guess not if you're at the North Pole. <laughs> I encountered an old student of mine in Vancouver this week, which was a surprise. Oh. And uh, he was on a cruise, and his parents were trying to identify a bridge that they had crossed under that morning. And I asked the very educated question. What side was the land on? Never minding the fact that they were crossing under a bridge, so there's quite clearly land on both sides. <laughs> well, maybe you meant, like, the mainland. What I meant was the mountains, but oh. I was uh, not, yeah, that's, not smart on that one. That wasn't good at all, Russ, and you were teaching their son? I was the educator of their boy. And what were you teaching? Hopefully not like geography oh, or anything. Instructional technology. <laughs> okay. Well, that's fine then. Nothing useful. Well, what are we talking about today? Well, I am reading Here Comes. Oh boy. Here comes summer. Here comes summer. Chirping robin, budding rose. Here comes summer. Here comes summer. Gentle showers, summer clothes. Here comes summer. Here comes summer. Whoosh. Shiver. There it goes. New illustration. That does describe the uh, transient summers of the Pacific Northwest. Right. We in the Pacific Northwest have long falls and long springs and very short summers and winters. And it was just the solstice pretty recently. Yeah, was it on the 20th? I heard it was the 21st. Did you hear the 20th? I mean, it's usually, I think it is uh, at a certain time of night. I checked my sunrise and sunset calculators, and on the 20th and the 21st, for Vancouver at least, they were the same. Same minutes in each day, same sunrise, same sunset. Yeah, I mean, I think the midpoint is at night. Well, I did not sacrifice the harvest maiden this uh, year, so there's definitely so going to be So the summer solstice... Officially began on June 21st at, for the Pacific time, it would have been around 2 a.m. Huzzah. Huzzah! I celebrated it in the correct 24 hours, at least. <laughs> yes. I didn't observe the solstice very much, except that I was like, yes, we were at the solstice. And it was weird, because we had such intense, intense rain leading up, and then just suddenly, bam! On the first day of summer, it was very suddenly summer. And now, we won't see water for at least two months, but it, was, <laughs> it rained until the very last minute, and it rained hard. The reason I brought this poem up is to do with 
my feelings about summer. Ooh. Because poetry podcasts are inevitably going to be a feelings podcast. Well, I know that you uh, don't enjoy the colder months so much, secondary to S-A-D. Yes. It almost felt a little bit like S-A-D with as much rain as we were getting this spring. Mm. It rained on... It literally rained on our parades. Like, we have the big, like, Rose Festival and stuff, and I'm sure that was very rainy. Um, (laughs) But when I was a kid, I mean, summers were the most glorious time of the year because you weren't in school anymore, and you got to do pretty much whatever you wanted all day. And I worked in schools, and you did too, for a while, in my early adulthood especially. And so, once again, I had summers where I had a lot of freedom. And then as an adult, you're expected to work all summer long. And that that's quite silly. And Portland summers used to be the most glorious thing in the world. You would have nine months of rain. And then the summers here were gorgeous and mild. And everybody would be so friendly because the rain <laughs> finally broke. And it was and I used to just crash random parties at <laughs> night. I would just like go biking home from wherever I was and I would just hear a party happening. I'd be like, yeah, whatever. And I'll just join in. I would just walk into people's houses and be like, I'm part of this party now. No and one for the... would notice. <laughs> and for the most part, people were pretty accepting about that. But now the summers have gotten kind of deadly. Is this heat dome kind of deadly? Yeah, like the 116 degree weather we had last year where hundreds of people died. And also all the fires where summer's just not that fun anymore it's just not pleasant it's too hot it's too hot and and i can't breathe from the smoke and that blissful time is gone and it may never exist again it has been a smoky couple of summers hasn't it it's been that way before russ you just got here it's true but it didn't used to be that way now I doom scroll a lot and I'm sort of hyper aware of, you know, how many people died during the heat dome and who's being invaded by who and, you know, what protest is going on today versus when I was 16 years old, I didn't give a crap about any of that. Well, we also didn't have that information at our fingertips. We didn't have it like fire hosed into our face. We'd have to go like look at a newspaper or something. So I wonder how much of it is just... Like, these things were happening all the time. We just, you know, didn't truck in them. I don't know, but I do know that the fires and the heat dome aren't a matter of getting more information. Like, it is just you physically have a consequence. Like, you're physically, you need to go inside or you will die. Or, you know, in my case, I, with the asthma, I, I need to go inside or I will suffer extreme repercussions for breathing in the smoke. And so it's there are physiological things that are not just about doom scrolling. Mm. There, there are basic survival needs now. Like summer, <laughs> summer's turned from a time of bliss to, to a time of desperate survival. Where do the blissful summers exist, I wonder? Probably near the equator where... Well, you know, until the hurricane's rolling. <laughs> Do we just go further? Maybe they're in Ketchikan, Alaska now. I think that's on fire, too. Oh, damn. I think all the tundra is burning. <laughs> but I used to have... Sunny nice... Reykjavik! Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I used to, and I kind of still do. I mean, Reykjavik's very summer, sunny in the summertime. Maybe the summers remain blissful. Yeah. 
I used to, and I still do to an extent, have an anxiety about summer, though, where if I don't try to make the most of it, that I feel like I'm squandering my life. I know exactly what you feel. I've got the FOMO big time. Yeah. It's less now that summer is physically uncomfortable. Mm. And also, like, times if you go outside, you will die. I have less of a, oh, I'm squandering this time where if I go outside, I will die. But there was a while, and maybe since we've had so much water this year, it will go back to that, where if I don't make the most of the summer, I'm going to feel like I can, like I'm just running towards death. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that, but that caught me as funny. Um, what, what do you consider a successful summer? What, what must occur to, so that a successful summer has been had? Things that you can only do when it's the weather is warm, such as being on the water, swimming, mostly spending time outside. I think for me, it's taking a trip of some kind. Oh, and also foods are related to summertime too. Like when you have the glut of tomatoes, of just perfectly ripe and fragrant tomatoes. To whoever is putting the GMO in my beefsteak tomatoes, I want you to keep that up. These things are amazing. Hmm. They are larger than any tomato God ever dreamed of. And... (laughs) Where are you getting these giant t- tomatoes that actually taste good? Your independent grocer. Okay. What do they look like? They are the size of a fat baby's head. Wow. And they actually taste good, even though it's not tomato season? Yes. Wow. I'm really impressed. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we're talking about food again. D- did I misunderstand you? I thought you were talking about tomatoes in summer. Yes. Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. I mean, that's part of the summer experience of like these temporary ephemeral things that are based on weather and also plant life cycles. Like I cannot, I don't know how well my garden's going to do because a lot of it rotted or was eaten by slugs because of too much rain. And a lot of the vegetables are dependent on there being heat. And maybe we won't get a lot of heat this summer, but also it'll be nice to be outside without risking our, my life. I have Maybe I'll get to go on, on like a river float or something like that where it's been too miserable to do it in past years. <laughs> I have well, parked on eaten by slugs. <laughs> eaten by slugs? You've parked on it? Yes, that is that, that, that is spiraling in my brain right now and I'm putting it on t-shirts and <laughs> like that was, it, it was such a phrase of wonderful hopelessness. Most of my garden was eaten by slugs. That is the best opening line to a novel that, I've ever heard. But it's such a common thing that happens in the Pacific Northwest. Well, someone needs to write it down. It was so wet, and this isn't related to slugs, it was so wet that a lot of my garlic just rotted in the ground. Jesus. I didn't know it could do that. (laughs) I didn't know either. Doesn't garlic usually just like sprout like, like a... Well, yes, it sprouts, but then if you have a nice big clove that sprouts, you can then put it in dirt. And then a while later, it it puts up it puts up like greenery and and it'll put up a scape and you can eat the scape you can eat the greenery if you want but like you have to have some greenery there so that the garlic can get energy from the leaves and then it puts it back down into the bulb and suddenly there are more bulbs when you pull it out there are all these bulbs are you, and you telling turn me one that garlic into plants reproduce yes Shut the hell up. Well, this is interesting because it's, you know, it's a clonal reproduction. It's not a, <laughs> it's not by seed. Oh, okay. My misunderstanding. 
It's not reproduction in the traditional sense you're thinking of. No, it is not. <laughs> in order to do that, you would have to let the scape grow and flower, but that just takes energy away from the bulbs. <laughs> oh, we are all over the map. I yes, love we it. Are. Yes, we are. In any case, for me, the poem is gives me a chance to both reflect upon my anxiety of the shortness of the summer, but also, do I even like summer anymore? Hmm. This is only my, what, second full year having seasons, all four of them. And so watching the many trees outside my window go from completely bare to covered in green and being opaque is uh, refreshing. It's like versus Texas where there's hot, hot birds and maybe bring a sweater, as a friend of mine said. (laughs) For a minute, I thought the birds were hot. Those are the four seasons in Texas. Birds birds i wonder if i'm not the only one who's gone from loving summer to dreading it due to climate change and i wonder because there's such a romanticization about summer and there are so many songs about how wonderful and the summer is and how you found your lover in a summertime fling or whatever and i wonder if there's going to be a decline in the amount of songs written about summertime because fewer people are enjoying summertime. Well, aren't to our regulars, someone write a bot to uh, scour Google from time to time and bring us the answer. Yeah, see if there's a decline in the number of songs written about summer. All right, here's the good news. Mine is very straightforward. I am reading The Sword Swallower. Okay. The Great Sword Swallower, Salamar. He wears no ties or collars. He leans back, opens up his mouth, and gulp, his sword he swallers. I guess he finds it fun to feel that steel down in his belly. It's fine for he, but as for me, I'll take some bread and jelly. And of course, you have Salomar in his footy pajamas and funny jester hat swallowing a sword. Oh, the sword swallower. So, when I was in uh, Las Vegas, I had the opportunity to see Absinthe, which is a uh, show comprised of human oddities interspersed with black comedy. And one of those human oddities, and something that I haven't really observed since I, or since I can remember, was a sword swallower. And uh, this woman came on stage and put many, many things down her throat and uh, left the audience aghast. And so said I, who was this interesting individual? Because they're, uh, I didn't get a program and they're not uh, like introduced during the show. So I googled, and her name is Heather Holiday. You can follow Heather <laughs> on Instagram. I'm sorry? Good show name. Yes, good show name. Uh, you can follow her on Instagram at Heather Swallows. <laughs> That's a great name for her act. <laughs> that, is a, that is a great name for her act into her backstory a bit and she uh, grew up Mormon and uh, joined a a little local show at Coney Island for what she thought was a summer gig and learned how to swallow swords and the rest was history and her act is pretty cool and at one point she puts six swords down her throat and the act concludes with her swallowing a goddamn lightsaber and of course it lights up her throat that's really cool 
That is really cool. So, <laughs> me. Wow, there's me. like there's a pic on her Instagram. There is a picture of her swallowing a sword that bends while yes. she is side planking. Yes, she does that in the act. She she swallows like a scimitar and and then like lays right. on her side, all cur- all curvy. Wow. Oh my god. That is a lot. <laughs> she is swallowing six blades. <laughs> my god. Okay. Oh boy. And of course, there is no trick to this. This is not any kind of illusion. This is not any kind of smoke and mirrors trickery. When you swallow swords, that's exactly what happens, except it's not really swallowing. It's because you have to relax that reflex to get them on down there. Uh, I, I would research that, like in Houdini days, there was a popular theory that sword swallowers swallowed a pipe first, and that accommodated the swords, but somehow to me that's way more impressive. And yeah. uh, also, no, that's not what's happening. Uh, you're just shoving swords down your throat. Yeah, I have a pretty tremendous gag reflex, and uh, it would never be my thing. And so I said to myself, surely this must be one of those things that we stupid recent generations have come up with. And I was wrong. Because sword swallowing seems to have its roots in 2000 BC India. And then permeated through basically every culture since that ever had contact with India, which is all of them. <laughs> and so you see it in the Middle East, you see it show up in around 750 AD in China and Japan. Uh, it still shows up in Sangaku performances in Japan. And by the 1100s, it's in um, Europe. And then it just continues on down the histories. People putting long, sharp things down their necks. That's but they hilarious. Can't be that to sharp, me. right? I'm sure they're they're unsharpened swords. They are not. They are not that sharp, but of course they are pointy metal that's going down your bits. Right. And uh, and injuries are usually traumatic. And Miss Holiday herself has a quote uh, that I saw in an interview of hers. There are two kinds of sword swallowers: those that have been injured and those that haven't yet. Oh man, which one is she? I never asked her. <laughs> <laughs> However, then in the history of sword swallowing, I came across this article by June Arney, uh, and it is why endoscopists should thank sword swallowers for their pioneering work. Ah! <laughs> I love it. And among the history of sword swallowing is a development of improved endoscopy. This is June's article. Adolf Kussmaul, a physician studying endoscopy in his clinic in Freiburg, Germany, was one of the first to incorporate the skill of local sword swallowers into his research. During the 1850s, Kussmaul was able to visualize the esophagus and fundus with the help of a sword swallower using a 47 centimeter long, 13 millimeter diameter rigid device with an external gasoline lamp. He took the sword swallower around to clinics with him to demonstrate his technique. And this preliminary research led to the development of the first clinically used gastroscope. That's really cool. Also, you should suggest that to Sawbones. Oh, should I? (laughs) Have they not covered that one yet? I don't think they have. And uh, there is a, a Wikipedia article that lists notable current sword swallowers. However... 
Heather Holiday is not on that list, and so I feel an edit, edit. coming on. Edit. Edit. You have the power. So, do you have any uplifting thoughts to send us off with? Well, that depends on whether or not you find kittens uplifting. Oh, you know I do. <laughs> well, I finally got rid of my last extremely feral kitten. Uh, she's friendly enough enough to be adopted, and her adopter says she doesn't like it when you put her down because she's scared. She doesn't like it. She gets pretty angry when you pick her up, but she's only happy when you're holding her. <laughs> oh, she's not just good. She's good enough. And so I'm getting a new delivery of spicy kittens tonight. <gasps> How many? Three, I think. They're all little fluffy house panthers. Little Does void house kittens. Pa- they're all boys? Void. Oh, void kittens. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're all black.